Good morning. Please be opening your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. We're looking this morning at the feeding of the 5,000. Outside of this, of the central event of the entire Christian faith, which is of course the resurrection of Jesus, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that's found in all four Gospels. And John spends a lot of time in his recounting of this uh, miracle of, on the, um, the response of the people. And the people liked it so much that they demanded he feed them continually like Moses had in the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, but in Matthew's account these, of these events, there's no indication that the crowds even knew that the miracle took place. Well, the reason for that is because Matthew doesn't want the attention on the crowds or on their response to, to the miracle. The great emphasis for Matthew is the compassion of Jesus. The compassion of Christ and His great supply that He has, that it's plenty for everybody. And that's where we're going to focus this morning in Matthew 14, 13 through 21. We'll read the text together. Now when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. When he was ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them, and he healed their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate, and the hour is already late. So send the crowds away so that they can go into the villages and they can buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, We have here only five loaves and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Ordering the people to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed the food, and breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve full baskets. And there were about five thousand men who ate besides women and children. So we're going to spend two weeks looking at this narrative. This week we're going to focus just on these nine verses as we examine just the content of the story itself. But next week we're going to turn to showing how this story serves to contrast Jesus, compassionate Jesus, with cruel Herod. And, within, and also how that within this story we see communion foreshadowed. We'll touch that today, but we're going to flesh it out next week. But even without delving into this stark contrast that exists between King Herod in verses 1 through 12 and King Jesus that we have here in 13 through 21, uh, there's a ton to glean. And first, we're going to look at a secluded place a compassionate, save, uh, compassionate king, uh, his contentious disciples, and then lastly, a satisfied people. That's where we'll be headed this morning. But we'll begin with a secluded place. When Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. And there's a couple of things about Jesus withdrawing to a secluded place by himself that we should consider. And both of them point to the humble humanity of Jesus. It's easy for us to forget that Jesus was a humble man, that he had, his experience was as a man just like 
You and I, wasn't it? So the humble man, Jesus, and that's his safety. He's seeking his own safety and he's dealing with his own sadness. So begin with his safety. When Jesus began his Galilean ministry, it was a very public ministry. The Lord sought out the crowds. He tried to find the crowds. And he went from city to city and from town to town proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom to anyone who would listen. But from the earliest days, the religious leaders were skeptical. And then we've seen a progression from there. They went from skeptical to unfriendly. And then ultimately in 1214, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. It kind of got worse and worse there, didn't it? They're wanting to destroy Jesus. For Jesus, this danger is now spreading from the religious leaders to the political leaders as Jesus now finds himself on King Herod's radar. A paranoid, guilt-stricken Herod heard of Jesus' miracles, and if you remember, he believed Jesus to be John the Baptist, whom he had had beheaded, risen from the dead. If Herod felt threatened by Jesus, just as he had felt threatened by John the Baptist, then he wouldn't have hesitated doing the same thing to Jesus that he had done to John. And Jesus clearly saw that as a threat to his and the disciples' safety. Well, how, how do we know that? Well, the Greek word translated here for withdrew, it occurs several times in the book of Matthew. And every time it's associated with danger and getting away from danger. Um, in 2.12, the Magi were warned not to return to Herod, so they, what? Withdrew there to the country by another road. Similarly, Joseph was warned about Herod's intentions to kill Jesus if he, came, if he was around, so he withdrew into, into Egypt. Again, when Joseph was in Egypt preparing to return to Israel, he was warned that Archelaus, Herod's son, was in power. And because of that danger, Joseph withdrew into Galilee. The pattern continues in 4.12. When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And in 12, 14-15, a Sabbath controversy moved the Pharisees to conspire to destroy Jesus, as we just mentioned. And when Jesus heard about it, he withdrew. A direct confrontation with Herod Antipas would not advance Jesus' mission. And in light of what had happened to John, there, there, it, this was a great danger to be avoided. Especially in view that, of the fact that Herod saw Jesus as the new John. Jesus wasn't afraid of dying, but he wanted to die in the Father's time and according to the Father's will. So we, we not only see, though, Jesus' humble humanity displayed in his fleeing to safety but also in his sadness. Jesus didn't just go to a secluded place where he could be safe, but he went to a secluded place, it says, by himself. And the redundancy is intentional. Jesus had just heard that John the Baptist had been killed. And he heard about it from some of John's traumatized disciples who have just retrieved the headless body of their mentor and then went out and buried it and went straight to Jesus to let him know what had happened. Can you imagine that scene? They're distraught. They're taken aback. They're, they're, I mean, can you imagine how traumatized you would be? And Jesus just hears from them about John the Baptist and his headless body and how they went out and buried it. Have you ever received news of the tragic death of a loved one? Anybody here? I have. Anybody? You kind of want to be alone, don't you? Jesus experienced the full array of human emotion. Isaiah 53.3 says that the Messiah would be a man of sorrows and one who was acquainted with grief. 
I'm sure there was anger in Jesus' heart, that there was brokenness, that there was fear, and perhaps even uncertainty. You know, Jesus wasn't omniscient in His humanity, was He? Hebrews 4.15 says, We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things yet as we have, yet without sin. So Jesus is experiencing all this human emotion after hearing about the death of His friend, the gruesome death of a dear friend of His. And He goes off to a secluded place alone. If you've experienced a human emotion that is not in and of itself inherently sinful, then you can rest assured that Jesus experienced it as well. And Jesus also experienced the accompanying natural and certainly not sinful desire for solitude. As a man, Jesus needed to grieve. He needed to mourn, to pray. He needed to clear his head. But Jesus doesn't remain by himself in this secluded place for very long. There were clear, they were clearly looking for a place where they could go to be alone, but such hopes were dashed as the grieving king would be compelled to reprise his role as the, the compassionate king. We've seen that in Matthew before, haven't we? Remember the man with the withered hand that Jesus had compassion for him and his compassion moved him to healing even though it was the Sabbath day? Well, here we see it again. When the people heard of this, they followed Jesus on foot from the cities and... When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. Evidently, Jesus, or one of the twelve, was talking about where they planned on going and news began to spread. So when Jesus landed on shore, he found a large group who arrived by foot more quickly than they could even get there by boat. Now let's make sure we get this picture right in our heads. Guys, this is a big crowd. Huge the, the men who were fed, not including the women, there were 5,000 men, right? Let's say 5,000 men and perhaps we could say maybe as many as 5,000 women too. And much of the crowd was likely composed of married couples who had children because women and children are mentioned. At that time, you think Manorville Fellowship families are big. Families were, well, they were big back in that day. So it's not unreasonable to estimate that by the end of the day, the, t the total crowd exceeded 25,000 people out in this secluded place. Now, put yourself in Jesus' shoes and the disciples' shoes. You're exhausted. You're trying to mourn the loss of a friend. You really want to have some prayer time. You really want to have some alone time. So you plan for it and you tell a few people and then when you arrive to get that needed break there are 25,000 people waiting for you there wanting you to serve them. Think about that. Okay, what would you feel? Aggravation? Frustration? Exasperation? A lot of Asians, wouldn't you? Right? Maybe even one word that's not an Asian, maybe anger. All the above, I think. I mean, reduce the number from 25,000 and make it me going on vacation and somebody, one person calls me wanting something when I'm on vacation and I experience all those feelings sometimes. Like, hey, I'm on vacation for crying out loud, right? Sometimes on Saturdays when I'm doing sermon prep and somebody asks me to do something, I'm like, don't you know I'm trying to prepare my sermon on Saturday? But Jesus, what did he feel? He says he felt compassion. Oh dear God, let our hearts be as holy as our minds are. 
That's an important prayer for an intellectual Christian people who love theology, isn't it? God, let our hearts be as holy as our minds are. It's so easy to become calloused. There's so much brokenness, so much hurting, so much sin in the world, and it's easy to let the truth that much of the suffering that we see around us is self-imposed. Guys, that's true. But it's easy to let that truth numb us to God-honoring feelings of compassion. Jesus certainly had a big God theology. You think, he had, you think his theology was as good as yours? Sure, he had big God theology. And certainly Jesus understood the reality of human sinfulness. But yet, even though he understood homertology better than you do, he understood anthropology better than you do, he felt compassion. We can easily find a reason to excuse our lack of compassion. But Jesus was a man who was marked by great, great compassion. We've seen it again and again in Matthew. On two different occasions when Jesus had been falsely accused or persecuted, we've seen him divert his attention away from the threat and onto the need of other people. He's under threat and he's concerned about the need of others. We saw it in Matthew 9, 34 through 36. The Pharisees were saying that Jesus casted out demons by the ruler of the demons. But then it says in 35 that Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And seeing the people, he felt, again, here's this word, compassion for them, because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. In chapter 12, we've already mentioned that the Pharisees, when they wanted to destroy him, the next verse says, but Jesus, aware of this, he knew the Pharisees wanted to destroy him. He withdrew from there. We emphasized that earlier. But what did he do when he withdrew? He withdrew and many followed him and he healed them all. That's a compassionate Savior. He's not fixated on what's going on with him. He's fixated on what everybody around him needs. And he's moved by it. Now, we said we'd feel aggravation, frustration, exasperation, anger, but what would we do? Well, with all the patience we could muster, we'd likely try to help them see how selfish they are by asking for help. Without becoming red-faced or too terse in our tone, we might explain to them how ridiculous it was for them to follow us all the way out in the wilderness when we clearly needed some time to be refreshed. We'd try to be polite and then we'd tell them, Hey, I came here for rest, for quiet and meditation. Please go home and see me some other time. But compassion produces... Compassionate feelings produce compassionate actions. The word for compassion is an intense word. Some translate it as their hearts are moved to pity. But even that misses the impact of this word. The word actually, it means womb. It conjures up imagery of labor pains. And labor pains don't just happen and go away. Labor pains lead to something. When you have labor pains, it's because you're going to produce something, right? And they they get bigger and bigger and, and something has to happen to alleviate them. Something has to come forth from you before the labor pains go away, right? You've got to produce the baby. There's an end product to show for them. And that's why Jesus' feelings of compassion are immediately followed by the external acts of healing. They produce something. The compassionate feelings, the bowels of mercy gave 
birth to compassionate actions and He healed their sick. Sometimes our brokenness and grieving over bad things that have happened becomes an excuse to simply whine and complain about how bad things are and how much we've been through instead of actually doing anything to alleviate the suffering and brokenness that is around us that we can actually address. Bad stuff happens and we turn inward and oh, oh it's so bad. We can feel holy about recognizing how bad things are and complaining about how bad things are and all the bad stuff that's happened while there's people around us that we could serve, that we could love. We could pour ourselves out for the good of. Yeah, Jesus wasn't like that at all. Just complaining about, oh, oh I'm hurting so bad because John's dead. Well, he's dead, but these people, they're like sheep without a shepherd. And his heart went out, and he healed their sick. His sorrow for the dead is changed into compassion for the living. Instead of taking time to grieve over the death of his righteous friend, he turns his attention to serving the unrighteous but hurting masses. One commentator uh, he said, "We must not. He must now work, not weep. God finds work for every sorrowing heart that trusts in Him, in which relief is found. That when we're hurting, if we'll go out and we'll start healing, you'll find you'll feel better, and it will be as salve to your own hurting. That we spiral out of control into more and more despair because we get fixated on the hurt instead of trying to be the help that God's called us to be." We've got to learn from Jesus' example. Now bear in mind that Jesus' compassion pushed him to action despite the fact that it enhanced his danger and could increase the crowds. Let's think about that. Remember that Jesus is wanting to withdraw in part because Herod is intimidated by Jesus and fearful of him. And if Herod is fearful of Jesus, then then Jesus is like, when somebody's scared of you, they're a danger to you. Isn't that true? So... Herod was a lot of things, but real bright wasn't one of them. Neither was reasonable, or predictable, or righteous, or compassionate. He wouldn't have cared anything about all the people that Jesus was helping. Their suffering didn't matter any more to Herod than the fact that John was a righteous and holy man. So the fact that Jesus was a blessing to so many people wouldn't have kept Herod from wanting him dead. Herod cared about Herod. And Herod saw Jesus as a threat. For Jesus to hunker down and not do anything that might draw attention to himself would be a wise tactical move. But in order to do so, Jesus would have to have turned a blind eye to human suffering. And Jesus' compassionate heart wouldn't allow that. Jesus was wise in withdrawing to the wilderness instead of camping out on the palace steps with a sign that said, Free healing, step right up, you know. That would have been dumb. Jesus didn't do that. He didn't go to the palace steps to draw attention to himself. But he went out. He did withdraw as a form of protection. But when he got there, he didn't hide and refuse to do anything to call attention to himself. He still had to be about his father's business. In a decreasingly Christian culture, there'll be the threat for us to hunker down and hide. We don't want to try to call attention to ourselves and try to pick a fight. But God forbid we hunker down and hide. Guys, we've got a mission to fulfill for the glory of God. We've got to stand up and be willing to serve even if it hurts, even if it's a danger to us. Jesus was moved to action. Sure, having a huge healing service with as many as 25,000 people attending in the wilderness would lead to Jesus' fame spreading all the more, which would make the target on his back grow even bigger. 
But Jesus did the right thing regardless of the potential consequences. Another consideration that failed to move Jesus' needle away from being compassionate was that the healing could increase the crowd. Remember, Jesus wanted to be alone. He wanted to rest. He wanted to rejuvenate. He wanted to have some time to pray, to grieve. He wanted time to be alone. One of the worst things he could do to accomplish those goals was to give the people what they wanted by healing them. You know, the best way to get rid of a dog is, of course, feeding it, right? Of course not. No, when you feed it, it comes around all the more. The more people, he- the more people Jesus healed, the more the word spread about him and his miraculous powers. And the more the word spread, the more the people came, whether to be healed themselves or just to see the miraculous powers. It was a curiosity. You see, they didn't have Netflix or Hulu or Peacock or even just regular old cable and internet. And what Jesus was doing was way better than any of those streaming services anyway. So the more Jesus did, the more there was for him to do because more and more people would come to receive the benefits and more and more people would show up just to watch. Which would lead to him having to do more and more and was more and more exhausting. Again... True compassion produces action on the behalf of those in need. And Jesus loved not in word only, but in deed and in truth. God forbid we ever become these compassionate people that just love so much. Man, we we can be moved to tears, but we never do anything. But enough is enough, right? The disciples certainly thought so. They're tired too. And the disciples, they weren't as holy as Jesus. They weren't. So they became a little contentious. And we'll take a look at these contentious disciples, and starting in verse 15. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate, and the hour is already late. So send the crowds away, that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said, We have here only five loaves and two fish. You can sense a little tension here, can't you? The disciples seem to be over it. And the disciples tell Jesus what to do, and then Jesus tells the disciples what to do. Well, first, the disciples tell Jesus what to do. Guys, we are wise to refrain from telling Jesus what to do. That that should be a no-brainer, shouldn't it? But I bet we've all done it, haven't we? Where we've got more sense than Jesus, and we start trying to tell him how he ought to conduct his business. The Spirit seems to be something like this. Come on, Jesus, be reasonable. That There is nowhere here for the people to get any food. It's getting late. We've been at it all day long. We were tired when we got here, and now these needy people have devoured our entire day when we were trying to be in solitude. We haven't even had time to eat, we find out from Mark's account, and, and, or even to find out what we might eat. The only reasonable thing to do now is to send them on their way. They need to eat, and we need some rest. It's a win-win situation. And we need some alone time. Christ's disciples often show their common sense way more than they do their zeal. Hey, be careful not to show your common sense about why we shouldn't do stuff instead of your zeal about how we can. That's important. We emphasize why we can't do something instead of thinking about how we can do something good. This suggestion is actually the form, in the form of a command. Send the crowds away. So they command Jesus, send the crowds away. It's also worth noting that they are encouraging a bit of self-reliance. They, look what they say. That they might go into the villages and buy food 
for themselves. That resonates with me on some level. And there's certainly a place for it. Don't feed the bears signs exist so that a dependent population is not created, right? That's why they exist. In John's parallel passage, John feeds them once but refuses to continue doing so when they demand that Jesus provide for them physical sustenance over and over again going forward. But Matthew is highlighting Jesus' compassion in contrast to Herod's cruelty, so he emphasizes something different. He doesn't even point that out. Sometimes it's time to emphasize one truth and not another, although both things are true. He wants to emphasize our need to be a compassionate people. So Jesus now tells the disciples what to do. Jesus corrects the disciples. They're insisting that the crowd go into the villages and buy food for themselves. And Jesus answers their command with a command of his own. But Jesus said to him, adversative, this but. No, no, on the contrary. There's there's something going on. There's tension. But Jesus said to them, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. They don't need to provide for themselves. You provide for them. Jesus does not say what is to be eaten or how the disciples are to obtain it. He simply turns their attention away from from the hopelessness of the situation and their easy solution and invites them to think about how they could help. When we listen to the Spirit of God, we avoid simplistic, hands-off solutions. Well, they're just going to have to make it work. I mean, mean, they're they're grown people. They're just going to have to figure it out. We, we, yes, but not just that. Not just that. We will certainly encourage others to be who they are supposed to be and to do what they're supposed to do, but we will also always be eager to ask what we might do to be able to help. Even people that don't deserve help. Guys, that's what grace is. Grace is when you help people who don't deserve help. I don't know, like you and me, who didn't deserve help, yet Jesus died for us. But yet we say, I'm not helping them. They don't deserve help. Sounds reasonable if you're insane. As people who have received grace, we should be conduits of grace and love people who don't deserve help. Given the number... Given the numbers involved, Jesus' response, you give them something to eat, must have sounded like a joke. And there's two impossible possibilities. I put that... There's two impossible possibilities, I know that, suggested for feeding them that we find across the Gospels. First, go buy them some bread. Matthew doesn't mention this suggestion. Why? Because he wants the attention centered on the compassion of Jesus. But Jesus actually presents this suggestion as a test in the book of John. Therefore Jesus, John 6, 5-7, lifting up his eyes and seeing the large crowd that was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that all these can eat? You can almost see the little glimmer in his eyes and the little playful grin. Where are we going to get some food for all these people? Jesus was kind of fun. He had a little more personality than we give him credit for. Where are we going to get them something? And he was saying this to test Philip. For he himself knew what he was going to do. And Philip answered and said, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everybody to even receive just a little. 200 denarii was equivalent to eight, eight months of wages for a man. 
That's how much money we're talking about. And eight months worth of wages for an average man would not have been enough money to buy enough bread to feed all these people not only until they're full but just a little bit per person. It certainly wasn't wise for them to spend everything they had for 25,000 people to go out to eat once. So what is solution number two if the disciples are supposed to give them something to eat? Well, if they aren't going to go out and buy bread, we get our solution in verse 17. Well, we have here only five loaves and two fish. Now, if eight months' wages wouldn't have fed everyone there enough to have their fill, then the five loaves and two, two fishes were really too inco- inconsequential to even mention, wouldn't it? You can't forget that this actually took place before the massive inflation of the last two years and the denarii hadn't even been hit that hard yet. But still it wouldn't have fed everybody. Guys, that was funny. you got to laugh at that. So that the disciples didn't even throw the suggestion of just using what they had out with any seriousness. He says, we only have five loaves and two fishes, Luke 9.13 says. Unless we go and buy food for all this crowd, there's nothing we can do. If 200 denarii wouldn't get everyone a little, then five loaves and two fishes wouldn't get each person a crumb. The solution should have been evident. Who are they with? They had seen Jesus heal the blind and the deaf and the lame to deliver the demon-possessed and raise the dead. They had watched him spend the whole day performing miracle after miracle. But somehow it never crossed their mind that Jesus might be able to handle this little food shortage situation. They were face to face with the supreme power of the whole universe and apparently they forgot. Undoubtedly they knew he could do it but yet they didn't know. Had anyone asked them if Jesus could feed everybody there, they, they would have answered unequivocally, of course he can. You should have seen what he did at the marriage supper in Cana. He turned regular old water into fine expensive wine. Yeah, Jesus can do it, but they forgot. When Jesus suggested they feed the multitudes, they saw their own lack instead of his abundant supply. God gives us tasks to do, and if we're not careful, we'll focus on our impotence instead of his omnipotence. Let's not do that. Jesus has proved himself faithful again and again. But yet within the same day of him proving himself to us, of mightily delivering on our behalf, we can enter into a state of hopelessness, of helplessness and despair. And it's really crazy. It's insanity. Men can so easily be like a person who stands in front of Niagara Falls and asks, where can I find something to drink? I just don't know. Either it never crossed the disciples' mind that Jesus could feed the multitudes or they lacked compassion and just didn't want him to do it. I'm not sure which one's worse, right? Either they didn't know if Jesus could, doubting his power, or they hoped he wouldn't because they were ready for everybody to be gone. I'm not sure which one it was. But both are bad. And Jesus wouldn't put up with either one of them. And ultimately, Jesus brings this story to, his, to its climax with another command. And he says in verse 18, Bring them here to me. And that's going to end with the satisfied people, isn't it? Verse 18, And he said, Bring them here to me. 
ordering the people to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food, and breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they ate and were satisfied, and they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces. Twelve full baskets. There were about 5,000 men who ate, besides the women and the children. In this great climax, we see the power of Jesus, the purpose of the Father, and the provision of the people. The power of Jesus. Guys, what a lesson to learn. What we bring to the table is of absolutely no value unless it is placed in the hands of Jesus. And regardless how small that which we place in His hands happens to be, it is of infinite value once it gets there. Because He has infinite power. John 15, 5, I am the vine, Jesus says, and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he brings forth much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from him, we can do nothing. But with him, we can bring forth much fruit. And with him, all things are possible to him who believes. I love Martin Luther's simple, uh, simple yet profound commentary on this text. He says, Our nothing here really means nothing, and not a little something. I like that. That's important for us to remember. If we think our inventory is where our hope for victory rests, then we'll be constantly taking inventory to decide what we can and cannot attempt to the glory of God. Right? If, hey, I've got to have enough stuff to be able to make this happen, then we're always, okay, how much stuff do I have? Oh, not enough yet. Oh, not enough yet. Oh, not enough yet. But if our inventory has no bearing on it, but the one who's using the inventory for his glory and he's omnipotent, then we will charge the gates of hell with a water pistol because we aren't scared of anything. We have total confidence and courage at that point. Once we realize that our hope for success depends solely on the power and purpose of Christ, we will attempt the seemingly undoable, knowing that victory is the inevitable result. And that's what happened here, of course. The disciples could do nothing, but they had five loaves and two fish. And when they gave them to Jesus, they found that that meager amount of food was enough. And more than enough, wasn't it? Having given the command to his disciples to bring the loaves and fish to him, Jesus then orders the people to sit down in the grass. Jesus is clearly in charge of the situation, and his authority is apparently accepted by the crowds. There's an authoritative note about Jesus' ordering. It's, it's picked up well. He orders the people. He doesn't suggest. He doesn't ask nicely. He gives a direct order, ordering the people to sit down in the grass. Jesus is not a pussycat king. Josh Woody. Amen. He, he assertively wields his authority, but he always wields it for the good of those who are under his charge. Always. Every command he ever gives you is for your good. He's not trying to steal your joy. He's trying to give you greater joy. His every command is a blessing. 
Jesus says every command is given for the good of those He instructs, just as all rightfully wielded authority must be. Brothers and sisters, we believe in well-ordered, biblically structured homes with wives submitting to their husbands as unto the Lord. But husbands, you're not a tyrant ordering people around for your own good, get in the kitchen and make me a pie. You're giving commands according to the will of God for the good of your children and your wife, or you are a tyrant husband and not a godly Christ-like husband. We lead for the good of those who are under our charge if we will be like Christ Jesus. Jesus takes over the situation and gives instruction as to how it is to be resolved. And once everyone is sat down, as any good leader does, even Christ Jesus, the Son of God Himself, turns everyone's attention to the purpose of Father. Remember, He's a man and He's doing these, power, these miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit according to the purposes of the Father. Looking up to heaven, He blessed the food. He looks up to the Father and He blessed the food. And breaking the loaves, He gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Jesus takes on the role of the head of the family at a Jewish meal. When he takes the food and utters the formal blessing, he does that to consecrate it before the Father, thanking Him before it's shared with anybody else. Are you a head of household who turns people's attention to glorifying the Father who has given you all things? If not, you need to repent. That's how we should be turning people's hearts and minds. You might think that Jesus did whatever hit his head to do, but you'd be wrong. No one is more clear about that than the Apostle John in his writings, quoting Jesus. Remember in John 5.30, Jesus says, I can do nothing of my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Yeah, Jesus was authoritative, but He was discharging His duty under the authority of the Father, carrying out the Father's will, seeking to do what the Father would have Him to do. Jesus was a man who submitted his every decision to the purpose of God and planned every action according to the purpose of his Father. But there's two dangers here. One, we can commit things to the Lord that are not his will. I'm committing this, fill in the sinful blank, to God and I'm going to trust him to bless it. I'm going to open this, whatever it is, up and then give it to the Lord. Well, the Lord would rather you not open it up because it violates his commands. Right? We have to be careful not to try to do unbiblical things by the power of the Spirit. Many people in many churches commit things to the Lord that are not in line with God's will as revealed in His Word. Just because it works, just because it sounds good, or because it might be popular, doesn't mean it's according to God's purposes. We must measure everything according to God's Word before we commit it to Him. Offering strange fire is dangerous. They did that in the Old Testament, did they? They offered these things to the Lord, but they didn't mix it the way the Lord said, and it kind of, it literally blew up in their face, didn't it? We've got to be careful to make sure it is in line and in keeping with God's Word. But also, doing good things in the power of the flesh without committing it to the Lord. I think that could be our bigger danger. It took the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God Himself, coming down out of heaven to model for us, sons of Adam, how to live a life that's completely yielded to the Father. 
John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So unlike Moses who said, remember Moses when they're in the wilderness in Numbers 20, 10 through 12, he talking to the children of Israel and he says, Listen now, you rebels. Shall we bring forth water out of the rock? Shall who do it? Shall, shall Aaron and I bring forth water out of this rock? That was the example of Moses. The greater Moses, he's in the wilderness and these people need to be fed. And he looks up into the, into the heavens and he gives thanks to the Father. And he does it to give God the glory and according to the purposes of the Father. That's how we should be serving. We need to be like the greater Moses, not the first one. Jesus readily and joyfully acknowledged that this miracle and all miracles had come from the hand of the Father and was accord, accomplished according to His purposes. When Jesus walked according to the purpose of the Father, depending on the power of the Father, the outcome would be obvious, and it would be the provision of the people. Those that He had compassion toward, His bowels of compassion, He's in labor pains, His hurting for them. What He wants to produce, He will produce when it's in line with the will of the Father. Verse 20 and 21. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces... Twelve full baskets. And there were about 5,000 men who ate besides the women and the children. Consider the comprehensive nature of this miracle. They all ate. That's the first word. Every one of them ate. As many as 25,000 people with five loaves and two fish, eight months' worth of work wouldn't have bought enough bread to feed them all, but five loaves and two fish fed them all. Naturally... Naturally speaking, five loaves and two fish wouldn't leave a single crumb for each person. But we are supernaturally speaking, so we don't care about naturally speaking, do we? That's what Jesus did. But not only did all ate, they all ate and they were all satisfied. They didn't just get a crumb. They ate till they were full. They didn't even have to go buy any bread. Not a single denarii was spent. More or less 200 denarii, or eight months' salary. And all the people ate and were satisfied. George Mueller said this, great man of God who did many things, things that you would think were impossible, but he was a man of prayer and he trusted God to give and provide what was necessary for him to continue serving. He said, God's work done God's way will never lack for God's supply. But not only did they all eat, and not only were they all satisfied, guys, they's leftovers. I love leftovers, don't you? There was leftovers. Twelve baskets full of leftovers. The miracle is astounding already, but this detail is just showing off, isn't it? Five loaves and two fish wouldn't fill one basket by themselves. You, you, they didn't have one basket full of food. And now after having fed 25,000 people, there are 12 baskets filled. I, I like to picture it heaped up over the top, bursting out, don't you? Filled with leftovers. Let's make a couple of observations before we close. This number 12 is probably symbolic. How many tribes of Israel were there? There are 12. How many disciples constituting the new people of God were there? 12. So, the church. Jesus will provide all the food that is needed for all of Israel. 
when, when a commentator rightly sees the gathering of the fragments as pointing into the future. If the five loaves and two fish can go so far, then what can be done with twelve baskets of food? Just put them back in Jesus' hands. It's going to do even more, isn't it? God's work just keeps growing and expanding. The more He does, the more you can be sure He intends on doing. Consider the parables of the mustard seed and the loaves, I mean, and the leaven. The church will bless all the nations, according to the parable of the mustard seed. It will grow up and all of the nations will lodge under its, in its branches and under its shadow. And all the nations will also be transformed as the leaven spreads through the whole lump of dough. Write it down. I ask you this. Is anything too big for Christ once we put it in His hands? We put it in His hands by faith and we believe Him for impossible things. Because with Him... All things are possible. But also, is there greater significance to this bread? In modern times, we have so much food and so many kinds of food that we scarcely realize how central bread was for life at that time. And for, for the people in the Bible, bread was desperately important. They call it our necessary food we say, well, food's always necessary. Yeah, but it was a big deal for them to have it where we can just take it for granted. And we have a lot more than just bread these days. You know, I'd get sick on just bread, wouldn't you? I've got to have some taters. I've got to have some beans. And we're going to have, have, have some meat up in there. But they, they ate a lot of bread just to survive. Here Jesus provided physical bread for physical needs. But later, this same language is used in Matthew 26, 26. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after blessing it, He broke it and He gave it to the disciples and He said, Take and eat, for this is my body. The bread would symbolize the supply that was much greater than just physical bread. Bread can prolong life, but not forever. When tempted to turn stones into bread, Jesus quoted a scripture acknowledging this fact. Remember the tempter came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And he said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. If you never sin, you'll never die, even if you never eat bread. But if you eat bread the rest of your life, but you're a sinner, you'll still have death. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. You need righteousness. And guys, that leaves us at kind of quandary. Because we ain't got none. We fresh out of righteousness. But Jesus would be that bread. He would live a perfect, sinless life, never violating the commands of God, not a single time. He says, Deuteronomy, uh, I mean, in John 6, 49 through 51, he says, Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one might eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Praise God that we, as the Israel of God, have something better than manna, something better than mere temporary life-sustaining bread. We have the bread that came down out of heaven. He could offer Himself because unlike us, He was always compassionate. 
He was never selfish. He always did the will of the Father. He never do, was, he was never deterred by his fear of man. He, he was never uh, kept from doing good because of his desire for privacy or solitude. His compassionate heart loved his neighbor as much as himself and loved God supremely, fulfilling the whole law. And then he hung on a cross, paying for where you and I weren't like that. I look at this and I say, I'm not like Jesus. No, nope, you're not. But He died on the cross to pay for where you're not like Him and then sanctifies us and conforms us to His image by the power of His Spirit as we believe on Him and trust in Him by faith. Yeah, there's something bigger going on than just bread and fish. There's the bread of life that we look to. And that brings us this morning back to the table where we always like to end up 